Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, It is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. So let's jump in. We're, we're uh, finishing up chapter 11 and starting a little bit into chapter 12 today of the, of the book of John. And I want to remind us the focus of the book of John is it's all about Jesus, obviously, but it's as told by the, by the disciple who, who seemed as opposed to the others, for some reason, to really know his love for them. He knew his, his, Jesus' love. We're going to see this, I think, is in chapter 13, just in a few weeks, uh, where John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Now, does that mean that Jesus didn't love the other disciples? Of course not. But there was an, a revelation, a knowledge, an understanding that Jesus truly loved John as he does the other, but John really got it. He really understood it. And he loves you the same. And what we're going to see today, especially hidden, I think, in some of the events that are leading up to the crucifixion, just a beautiful revelation, a beautiful unveiling of just how much Jesus actually loves you and me. And so we've gotten all the way up to literally the last week of Jesus's life. So John chapter 1 through the middle of 11 is like three-ish years, okay? John 11, halfway through 11, through John 21, 10, 11 chapters is like the, the last seven days of Jesus' life and his resurrection. So let's keep that in mind. So we're about to, on the timeline, like come to an in, uh, a crawl and actually uh, experience and walk through the last seven-ish days of Jesus' life and his resurrection in great detail because it covers almost the same number of chapters that we've, got, we've covered so far over three years of Jesus' life and, uh, and ministry in particular. And so Jesus, just for context, he's, he's gone to Bethany because Lazarus was uh, sick and Lazarus had died. And Jesus rose, raised rose Lazarus. He brought him back to life. Um, why is that verb weird for me? Um, he brought him back to life. Uh, and it was, uh, if you weren't here last week, I, I haven't had a chance to put the podcast on, but I'll try to do that uh, this afternoon, uh, well, soon. And, and it's just amazing to me when you really stop and think about what's really going on, how, how Lazarus is a, Jesus talks about the, in, in this world, we just see what we can see. There's 12 hours of day, 12 hours of night, and in the night, you're just stumbling around because there's no light in you. And the whole point of Jesus coming is not so that we can, you know, have sight during certain parts and we're stumbling around in the darkness in other parts, but that there is a new light, a new life within us. And to show them just how vivid and real this light that Christ himself now is, he calls into this, this cave of death and his own sheep hear his, hears his voice and Lazarus walks out alive. So the dead is now alive to show a picture. It's a, it, it's a real historic event, but it's allegorical for how we were dead in our sins and by the voice of God calling to us, we are now alive together with Christ. Now, we know the gospel that when we are raised by faith, joined to Christ, we now are seated with him. We now, the scripture talks about, we rest in him. We, are, we, we abide in him. We are at one with him. 
Uh, Jesus says in, I think it's Revelation, with, I, 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 Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and, and, and opens the door, I will come into him and we shall sup. It's like an old English word for just fellowship. We'll be together. We'll, have, we'll dine. We'll have a meal. We're one. And so Lazarus was risen from the dead. What do you think, if you know the gospel, that there's now intimacy, there's now fellowship, there's now oneness with the Lord in the gospel once we are raised from the dead? What would you expect the very next scene with Lazarus and Jesus to be after he raises Lazarus from the dead, if that is, in fact, a shadow, a picture, an allegory of our resurrection from the dead in Christ? What would you think the next scene would be a scene of, knowing the gospel and knowing that we now fellowship and we're now one with Christ and we now rest in him? What would the next scene be? Them fellowshipping. Yeah, so it's not a trick question. Them resting. Them enjoying each other's presence around a meal. They're good Christians. They eat, right? Just like we're going to on the 7th. Um, and, and between now and then. But um, so that's exactly what we're going to see. And that's what I'm saying. I think this is, Jesus says, this is not, the, G, Lazarus's death, remember he said last week, is not to end in, uh, in his death. This is not going to end in death, but so that I, the Son of God, would be glorified. And so I'm saying this is not just about a dead guy who comes back to life and is like, wow, go God. This is a picture, a revelation of something so much deeper and so much more impactful today for the glory of the Son forever. And so I would say, submit to you that this is all the picture, all the shadow, all of uh, uh, an allegory, if you will, of our being raised from the dead to where we now sup with him, we now dine with him, we now rest and recline with him. So let's read. Ending verse, chapter 11, starting in verse 55, says, now, to set some context, the Passover of the Jews was near. Passover was the annual feast, like the most important feast. It was a celebration of them being delivered from Egypt from their slavery in Egypt, which again, that's all allegory as well. Real, it's historical allegory of, of our slavery to sin, freedom that came through because of the death of the lamb. It's freedom that comes uh, going through the, the water that was part of the Red Sea. It's all a picture of us being enslaved to sin, the death of the lamb, Jesus, and now freedom. It, so this is what they're celebrating. They're celebrating not Jesus. They're celebrating still just freedom from uh, uh, um, Egypt. So it's near. This is the Passover that Jesus is going to be crucified at. Just FYI. Read ahead a little bit. John the Baptist calls Jesus the Lamb of God. And so the Passover lamb was slaughtered on this Passover celebration as a, as a remembrance of this rescue but Jesus has come to be the heavenly Passover lamb, to be what that lamb was always a shadow towards. So the Jews are all looking backwards, but Jesus is like, no, all that is for this. And he'll say that more directly next week. So the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. This is a great summation of the Old Testament law the efforts to purify themselves. There was all sorts of rituals and processes that they would have to go through in order to be worthy enough to actually celebrate the Passover meal. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think, uh, that he will not come to the feast at all? So they're looking for Jesus, but why were they seeking him? I, the jury's out to me on what their true intentions were. Um, the truth is they, they needed to find Jesus ultimately in order for themselves to be purified. You know, they're going to Jerusalem to purify themselves. The truth is they need Jesus in order to be purified. But I think that they're just looking for that entertainment value. I think they're looking, they're curious they're not committed. They're just looking, what is this next um, miracle going to be? What's the next thing going to be? I think there were some that were certainly more um, engaged and, and committed, if you will, than others. 
But we'll see in, 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 over the next seven days the very same crowd that laid down their cloaks and their palm branches to anoint him as the Messiah some four or five days later were also now with their fists shouting what? Crucify him. Yeah, so I mean, let's, let's realize that uh, people are fickle and they still are. We still are at times. And so they're, they're headed to the feast. They're curious as to whether or not Jesus is going to be there. And here's the big point, the end of chapter 11, as we jump into chapter 12. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now why are they wanting to seize him? Because he threatens their everything. He threatens their livelihood. They just said this last week when in chapter 11, that if this continues, the Romans are going to come in and the Romans are going to take away our place and our heritage, our land. They're going to take away our temple and they're going to take away our place if we continue to let this Jesus guy lead these people away from us. And so they want, remember Caiaphas had prophesied last week, the high priest had prophesied that it's expedient for one man to die so the whole nation doesn't die. And what he didn't realize is that That's exactly what's going to happen. One man was going to die so that the whole nation doesn't have to die, the whole nation being the people who believe in him, so that we can be rescued. And so, chapter 12, here we have Jesus going into Bethany. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. So Jesus had gone to Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead. All the people, a lot of them were like, wow, this is amazing. Others went to the Pharisees to say, hey, check out what this just happened. And now the Pharisees are searching for Jesus to seize him, to arrest him. And the Bible said last week that uh, the disciples and Jesus went off to this wilderness area called Ephraim, the city, to kind of get out of the way. And now... Six days before Passover, Jesus is coming back towards Jerusalem through Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Now, I know I mentioned this last week, but there's people who were here this week that weren't here last week. The names of these places, the names of these people is very significant. Um, Does anybody, besides Craig, because we already talked about this morning... Remember from last week what the name Bethany means the, 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 in Hebrew. I'll give you a hint. House of something. Beth is house. That's right. House of agony. House of pain. Sorrow. And remember we said that it was, it's actually the same Hebrew word that we, that's translated as song. S-O-N-G at times. Because a lot of times songs are about an agony, about a pain, about a problem that has, someone has had, a uh, way of dealing with the agony is to write a song about it, you know. And so Bethany literally means house, and then it comes from this, this derivative of, of pain, of sorrow, of agony. And does anybody, man, you get a star next to your name if you remember this one, does anybody remember how many miles uh, Bethany is from Jerusalem? Anybody remember? Yeah, two miles. That's exactly right, two miles. So it's very close. Now, to them, that's two miles walking, right? So for us, it's like, you know, two minutes away, but, you know, not, not by walking. So it's, it's on the outskirts. But this house of pain, this house of agony, is what Jesus goes through in order to get to, where is he headed eventually for the Passover? Jerusalem, right? And from last week, I know, we've already talked about this. What does Jerusalem mean in Hebrew? I'll give you a hint. City of peace. That's right. City of peace. And so let's get this. Let's realize that, 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 that there's a bigger narrative going on that God has developed beyond, before the foundation of the world that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is about to walk through, spend time in, the, the, the house of agony for a period of time on his way to the city of what? Peace. And we talked about this last week. That's the what? That's the gospel. That Jesus spent time, a.k.a. Friday, 
in the house of agony, the cross, on his way to something greater. On his way, thank God to something greater. Thank God, I mean, that's the whole center of our salvation, it's the whole center of Christianity, is that the house of agony wasn't the last step on the ride, last stop on the, on the train. But there was another stop called the, the city of, of peace, where now peace was actually available between man and God for the first time ever since the garden. When man sinned in the garden, the Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit was removed from man. And now because of Jesus going through the house of agony, the cross, and then ultimately the resurrection three days later, there's now the city of peace. There's a place of peace. The Prince of Peace now offers the Holy Spirit back to humanity for those who would believe. So we've got to see that this is, this is more than just cities on a map. I'm suggesting to you. I could be wrong. But I see Jesus going through the house of agony in order to get to the city of peace, a shadow, a picture, allegory, whatever phrase you want to call it, of the cross, which is on the way to the resurrection. Now, he's in Bethany where Lazarus was, and we're about to read something that happens in Bethany in the house of agony Something beautiful in the house of agony. Something precious in the house of agony. Something costly, something very valuable is lost in the house of agony. Something very dear. And also, honestly, something very controversial. Something holy is going to be broken and poured out in the house of agony. Now, I'm already trying to uh, solicit your, your support for the idea that the house of agony, Bethany, is a shadow, a picture of the cross. And now what I'm trying to solicit your thoughts on is that the, in this Bethany, in this house of agony, there's something precious that is broken and spilled out. And maybe you're already with me here because I see some smiles. Just like on the cross, there was something precious that was broken and spilled out. True? So let's read. So they, who's they? Jesus and, starts with an L, Lazarus, minimally. The disciples are all there too, but these are the only names we've got so far, right? Jesus and Lazarus. That's the only names. We know there's more. They made him a supper there. And Martha, that's the sister, was serving. Now look at this. Lazarus, who last week was a, I'm telling you a picture, it's a shadow of being raised from death, being raised from darkness, being raised to new life. If you want to look at what the, quote, mission of Christianity is, I think this is it. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Church, I'm just saying, that is the mission statement of Christianity. Reclining with Jesus. Resting with him learning of him, as he says. Take my yoke upon you, learn of me. Getting to know him. You see this? See, we've turned Christianity into this, like, you know, this system of modifying and behaviors and managing sins to the point where everything is, is so distant and cold and rote. Lazarus is just hanging out with Jesus, getting to know him, getting to, to, to learn of him and to receive more of this love that he has for him. I just think it's awesome. Now, another place is this is where, you know, Mary is, and Martha have the little squabble, but that's not here in John, so we're not going to talk about that today. Mary shows up. Remember Mary? Mary's one of the other sisters. So you got Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're all siblings. Mary walks in and took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. So nard, very quickly, it was used typically, it could be used for other things, I'm sure, but it was typically used 
to anoint the bodies of dead people to cover the stench of the dead so that they don't have to, quite honestly, smell the stench as badly, as poignantly, as, as, as badly as they would without as the corpse is rotting. And so Mary comes in with this pure nard that's meant typically, it could be used for other things, but it's typically meant to anoint a dead body. And she pours it out on his feet and she begins wiping it off and massaging it deeper into his skin with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So where are they again? What, what city? Help me out. Bethany, a.k.a. the house of agony, pain. And so in the midst of agony, something very beautiful, something very precious, something very costly, something very valuable, something dear, even something holy. I mean, the idea of holy just simply means other, right? So you have this pure nard versus like knockoff nard, right? If you went into the generic knockoff nard store, like this is pure nard. It's not knockoff nard. It's pure nard. It's holy, meaning it's other. It's different. So something even holy. But yet, we'll see, even something controversial is broken and poured out in this house of pain. This perfume of Mary's is pure nard. As I said, it was typically used to anoint the dead to cover the stench. Which, by the way, that's where flowers at funerals come from. If you didn't know that, this is just a side note just for your next trivia outing. Um, the whole way funerals, I mean, flowers at funerals started was to try to cover the stench before modern embalming, you know, happened. Just FYI. But that's what they're doing here. Just try to cover the snitch, the, the snitch, the st- stench. Uh, there is a snitch. We'll get to him. Um, we'll, we'll see in verse 5 in a second, I, I, but I want to mention it here, that this nard, this pure nard was so expensive, it was is labeled as being valued at 300 denarii. A denarii was, one denarii was, a, was averaged out to be a, a, a single laborer's daily wage. So if you had a laborer that worked for you, you'd give them to, to plow the field or whatever, one day, one denarii. So 300 is nearly a year's worth of, of labor, at least 11 plus months of labor. And so we'll see in verse 5 that we're talking, I don't know, in today's, Economy, 20-ish thousand dollars, $30,000, whatever that factors out to in an annual salary for just daily wage. Now, that's a pretty expensive perfume. You know, we've had Mother's Day already. We've had Valentine's. We know the cost of perfume. And this is, blows that out of the water, twenty to $30,000 for this perfume. So it's expensive. It's rare. It's valuable. It's holy. It's beautiful. I have a question for you. This is the way my brain works when I'm reading through this stuff. What is Mary? We don't get this idea that Mary is like this wealthy, you know, royalty. What is Mary doing with 20, and you can't answer, to $30,000, if you will, of embalming nard? What is she doing with that? Is she like a... A nard dealer? Like, what is this? Like, where is this coming from? Why does she have this? Any thoughts? Yes, sir. I was actually asking that question myself because it's a common thing. Yeah. Um, but if you know what's going to happen, maybe pull it away every month to prepare for that. Okay. So it's like a, a investment in, in essence, no, knowing that she, somebody's going to die. Okay. Well, this isn't Mary the mother. Right, this is different Mary. But, but still, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's a good, good point. There might be uh, just either intentional for the Messiah or just in general for we're going to need it one day. You know, so we kind of take, take one step at a time or one, one paycheck at a time, set us a little bit aside. Think uh, that, that's totally, I don't know the answer. I, it, my mind just wanders on these questions. But think with me of what just happened the chapter before. Did they not use it? <coughs> All right. Lazarus just died. 
right? And this is so cool. I hope this makes sense. Lazarus just died. And do you remember what Martha said when they got to the tomb? And Jesus said, pull the stone away. What did she say? It's going to stink. Don't, don't, don't. Because apparently they hadn't yet gone to the tomb to anoint the body, to cover the body. Because remember with Jesus' burial, they were on the way with the burial spices to anoint his body. And the, to- the, st- the tomb was rolled away. So apparently, and again, I- I'm not an expert on, you know, first century Jewish funeral rituals. But apparently they don't embalm immediately or, or uh, put the spices on immediately, apparently. Again, I don't know. I'm happy to be, be corrected. And so catch this. They had not yet taken this perfume and put it on Lazarus, assuming, assuming that's what it was procured for because Lazarus had died. He had been sick, so she procured it somehow, and she was about to use it on her brother, But instead of pouring it out onto her brother, whom Jesus rose from the dead and who is smelling fine now, she instead, I don't know how many days has passed since the resurrection of Lazarus to this meal, but she now takes the very thing that she was going to anoint her dead brother with and she uses it instead to now anoint the feet of Jesus with, where Jesus says in a second, she is doing this for my burial. Whether or not she realizes that Jesus is going to die, I I don't know. I think she might just be doing it as an act of worship, as an act of of, of humility and, and honor of we believe you're the Messiah. But Jesus makes the very clear point that she's doing this for my burial as a sign, a foreshadowing of, you know, he's about to die. Literally. How many days? Well, it's six days is the Passover. And so this substitution is is shown here where Jesus goes to the tomb of the dead who needed the the, the perfume and brings him back. He doesn't need the perfume. And now he's sitting there looking at the cross in the crosshairs of the next six days of his own life. And he's receiving the embalming or the embalming, the, um, the perfume that I'm suggesting was intended for the brother. So now he's receiving that perfume that was going to cover his stench, the brother's stench, to perhaps now anoint him for his burial. I just think that's so cool to see this, again, what was intended for my dead brother is now being used on you. I submit it was likely recently purchased or procured in some way for her own brother her own brother that didn't need it. So get this picture. In this place called the house of agony, you have something precious, something holy, something other, separate, set apart, something special being broken, spilled, and poured out. The fragrance of this nard would not only fill the nostrils of everyone in the room, as it says, but I have to think, I mean, if it's this potent, that's the P word I was looking for earlier. If it's this potent, it would not only fill the nostrils of the people in this room, but likely everyone within a city block or more of this house. And can you imagine a walker by, a passerby, who lives, a resident of the house of agony, Bethany? How'd you like that for, like, you know, I'm running for a city council for the House of Agony. Like, well, a city pride. But a citizen of this House of Agony walking by, smelling this aroma. Mary's hair is saturated with this aroma. Jesus' feet, as far as we know, these same feet that have walked on water, these same feet that will be cruci- that will be nail pierced in a few short days, have likely never smelt so beautiful in the middle of agony, the house of agony. So why did she do this? Is it a simple thank you? Is it a tribute? 
Is it a worship? Is it a foreshadow? I don't know the full scope of why she did it, but I think she did it because it just seemed to her the most appropriate way for, to her, for her to express her love to the Messiah because the Messiah expressed his love towards them by raising Lazarus from the dead. But it's not only beautiful, it's not only costly, it's not only holy, but it's also, as I said, controversial. So verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, one of the 12, who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Which on the surface, that sounds very noble. That sounds very pure, something pure of heart to do with the pure nard. Now, would What's his name? Judas. Would he have been so eager to sell it if it was his own? <laughs> Probably not. So why was he so eager to, to liquidate poor Mary's nard? Well, we don't have to guess. The scripture says this. Verse 6. <laughs> he says, now it's not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he, Judas, was a thief and he had the money box and he used to pilfer what was put into it. So it's not an issue of true heart issue for the poor. He wanted to get his cup, uh, his cut off of it. And the scripture goes on to say, I'm going to read one or two more verses, and then we'll talk for a second. Therefore Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. See, he's talking about this is something for my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, this sounds very rude on surface, doesn't it? Is Jesus anti-poor? Is he careless about what the struggle, the struggles, and the plight of the poor man? Well, of course not. I mean, that's been Jesus' almost exclusive ministry. It's been to giving sight to the beggars and to those who have nothing. But Jesus sees straight through Judas's thin disguise. Judas is not interested in the poor. Jesus, uh, Judas wasn't uh, uh, wanted to get his grubby hands on some of that 300 denarii. How much of the 300 denarii do you think he wanted? Probably 30 pieces of silver worth of the 300 denarii. You see, some people looked at this precious treasure in the house of agony being broken and spilled out. They looked at it as glorious worship, as Jesus clearly saw it as. Honoring him, thanking him, esteeming him, even magnifying him. But others, Judas right here, he looked at it and saw waste, saw Namely, loss of personal gain that he could have gained if she had sold it and he had collected the money. Now, this is likely one of the exchanges between Judas and Jesus that really set the ball rolling to what Judas was going to do just a few nights later when the priest and he got together to finalize the plans between Judah, uh, for, for Jesus' arrest. And we don't have time to get into it right now, but I heard an amazing podcast on Judas by Aaron Budgen. I've mentioned his name several times, and I'll mention it more. Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, Budgen. And he, uh, I can spell Aaron. I'm not so sure about Budgen. But... Um, if you're interested, text me and I'll text you the podcast. It's on, you know, the podcast app thing. And he did, he's, it's, it's, he, because of his connection with the, uh, uh, with the Hebraic culture, he just sees things so much better than we do as Western, basically foreigners, you know, who don't really understand, wrap our mind around the culture of first century uh, Israel. And, and his basic take, this was, I don't know what I'm talking about, it's not in those. His basic take was that Judas, 
His initial desire was to force the hand of Jesus to, to move him into the political Messiah that they all thought he was going to be. And, and so by doing the, the arrest, the motive of Ju- Judas was likely to, to force his hand at, becoming, at leading the, the people into freedom from Rome rather than um, continuing this mystery sort of ministry that he had been doing. And then when Jesus is arrested and beaten and whipped, what does Judas end up doing? He kills himself out of guilt and agony because he thinks, because he wanted, he really wanted Jesus to be this political leader, restorer of the old empire sort of a thing. It was a very unique take on Judas that I never heard before. Uh, doesn't justify anything he did, but, but, the, but he was used by the Lord, obviously, to bring about the death of the Messiah. But I really encourage you to check out Aaron's podcast. It's just, it's just fascinating every time I listen to it. So the large crowd, verse 9, of the Jews then learned that Jesus was there in Bethany. And they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but so that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had risen from the dead. Look at verse 10. If you ever thought that the Pharisees just could not get it together, here's, here's your, here, here it is. Verse 10. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Now, why is that so silly? Because he already been what? He already been dead. And so why is death, like think about it, why, why is death the intended goal for Lazarus when he's already been dead and they, Jesus has brought him back from death? It's like, how are you going to kill, what, kill him again? And Jesus just raises him from the dead again. So to do what? Kill him again? It just shows you just how uh, blind these, as Jesus called them, the blind guides, these people really were. But on account of him, him being the Lazarus, because they want him dead because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away, away from what? Away from their system, away from quote unquote Judaism, away from uh, adherence to Moses and were believing in Jesus. So this is all we're going to look at today. Uh, Next week, we'll see Jesus leaving the house of agony. The meal's over. He's making his way up what we call the triumphal entry. And we'll talk a little bit about how it's all the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. But that's all for next week. But he's leaving the house of agony, making his way for the city of peace, Jerusalem. And if we're not on the same page, if you're not smelling what I'm, I'm, I'm cooking, then this isn't going to make a lot of sense. But I'm trying to communicate that I think this is an, uh, at least... A, a, a picture, an allegory of some level of the cross, agony, giving way to peace between man and God through the resurrection. But in the agony, here's where we're going to land this plane this morning. In the agony, the house of agony, the cross, just like here in Bethany, there was something beautiful happening. There was something precious happening. There was something costly happening. Something dear. Something holy. But yet, something controversial. As you already see, hopefully, Bethany, the house of pain, house of agony, affliction, is a clear picture of the cross. Jerusalem, a clear picture of the city of peace, of the resurrection, and the new life in Christ. But to get to Jerusalem, the city of peace, Jesus went through Bethany, the house of agony and pain. And just like in order for Jesus to get to the new covenant, the, the resurrection, Jesus had to go through the cross, through the judgment for sin. On the cross, Jesus says this next week, we'll read it, The entire human race was judged. Jesus received the agonizing, excruciating punishment on a Roman cross through Roman crucifixion on our behalf. 
something agonizing. In fact, the word excruciating is Latin from out of the cross. Ex, like exit, leaving something. Cruciating, cruce, cross, out of the cross, pain from the cross is what the word excruciating even means. But just as Lazarus rescued Jesus from death and then he died himself, Jesus has chosen to rescue us by dying himself. This house of agony, the cross, yes, it was horrific. We've seen the passion of the Christ, the movie, probably doesn't even begin to compare to what it was really the horror of what the cross really was like. It was horrific, but yet there was something precious going on. It was gruesome, but yet it was beautiful. It was tragic, but yet it was valuable. It was inhumane, but yet it was dear and precious. It was vile, murder of an innocent man, but yet it was holy at the same time. And how so? Why so? Because I'm telling you, it was true love on display. The love of God for you, the love of God for me on display, like the love of Mary towards Jesus for what he had done, that precious gift, the love of God towards us in this agonizing thing of the Roman crucifixion, there's something precious in the midst of it that's broken and spilled out and on display for all who would believe to smell and to receive. No one loves like this. Someone, the scripture says, might die for a righteous man. But what righteous man would die for an unrighteous man? This is not of this world. Isaiah 53 verse 10 says that the Lord, talking about the Father, was pleased to crush him. A prophecy about Jesus on the cross being crushed, putting him, Jesus, to grief. The Lord was pleased to do this. Is God some sort of evil, desirous of pain person? How could it please God? How could it be pleasant to crush the son, to put the son to grief. I would submit that it was pleasant to the Lord because as agonizing as it was, the preciousness of putting away sin once and for all was a delight to the Lord. Why? Because now the ground of, the, the, the mound of sin that stood between he and you was gone. Because of the cross. Hebrews 12. Last part of verse 1 and then the rest of verse 2. Says let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Watch this. Fixing our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what was Jesus in the shame and the agony, the house of agony, the Bethany of the cross, if you will, what was his focus? There was a joy set before him. Craig and I were talking about working out earlier this morning, which I don't do. And um, it reminded me of how Back in college, when we were lifting, we had goals. We had, you know, aspirations. And it was a lot of hard work. But we had this vision. We had this dream of squatting X number of pounds, of benching X number of pounds. And so we would go through the agony to then hopefully be victorious at the end. But it was not fun. 5 a.m. workouts for four years, you know, and all this sort of stuff. It wasn't fun. But we endured the shame, the heartache, for the goal, the joy set before us. So what the scripture is saying is that Jesus endured this excruciating house of agony 
for a joy set before him. And what is after the agony, the house of agony, the city of what? Peace. Peace between whom and whom? Man and God. I say to you that the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured the excruciating house of agony was the reality that one day every knee would bow, every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His glory, his glorification. But I would submit equally that the joy set before Jesus as he endured what he went through on the cross where he even cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do was the reality that he and what he was doing was redeeming, purchasing a bride for himself. And who is that bride? It's you. It's me. For the joy set before him, can you humbly wrap your mind around the thought that as Jesus was enduring the shame of the cross, he had you on his mind? Who does that? His affections were for you. His beard being plucked from him. Crown of thorns being pressed into him. His bloodied meat exposed back rubbing up and down the raw cross. There was a joy set before him of having a bride. There's beauty in this gruesome reality. There's value in the tragedy. There was holy in the vile act of the crucifixion of the Son of God. And and likewise, just as with this nard in the house of agony, there was and remains controversy. Not everyone who sees the work of Jesus is glad with it. There are many who refuse it even to this day. There are many, like myself, for years who add to it and water it down with Jesus plus morality, Jesus plus obedience, Jesus plus daily repentance, etc., for the purification of your sins. So there's controversy still over what Jesus did. But Jesus is able to see through it. I hear him saying things like, look, you're always going to have this controversy. There's always going to be these people who say that. There's always, just like you said, there's always going to be the poor with you. But focus on me. I am here right now. So our journey marker today says, even in the house of agony, as he's on the way to the cross, something that is so gruesome, vile, horrific, even in the house of agony, Jesus' beautiful, precious, dear love for you, it's undeniable. It's undeniable. And this is... Jesus, as told by the disciple who knew the love. Now, whether or not John, when he's writing this, is, is seeing the pure nard as a shadow and picture and revelation, I don't know. I can't speak for John. You can ask him later. But what I'm getting, hopefully, us all to begin to wrap our minds around is the fact that everything, even Jesus and Bethany, everything, is a revelation, it's a picture, it's a shadow, it's a foreshadowing of just how much he is crazy about you. Now, does that mean there's something awesome about you? Maybe, but I would say that means there's something awesome about him, that he would love me as he does. Because I know me, and I know you's too's. And so it says more about him than it says anything about you. So we boast. That's why I say, guys, we boast not about our love for him. but We boast about his love for us. And what's the effect of that? It's an incredible amount of humility, an incredible amount of gratitude and gratefulness. Yes. But it allows us to get to know him. 
Go back to verse 2. What was Lazarus doing? He was just reclining at the table with Jesus, hanging on every word. Guys, that's, that's the Christian walk, the Christian life. And as we get to know him as the apostle teaches, apostle Paul teaches, it brings about the manifestation of that love through these bodies into this world called the fruit of the spirit. So yes, let's don't ever forget there is an outward change. Absolutely, but that is only going to come by an inward growing revelation of what he's really his affections really are towards us. So I encourage you to come back next week because he leaves the house of agony and he starts making his way towards the city of peace. And uh, like I said, chapters 12 through 21, it is some detailed conversations in this last six-ish days of Jesus' life. And I hope we have a good uh, journey through it. Any questions or thoughts or ideas or but whatabouts or anything as we uh, wrap up this morning? Yeah. Jesus, yeah. And then it made me think of Jesus saying, this is the anointing for his death, and isn't it our anointing because we die with him? Yeah, sure thing, yeah. Yeah, there was no different of smell between those his feet and her hair. That's exactly right. And, and to think about it, we, we haven't got there, but the crucifixion is six days or less from now. So what do you think his feet still smelt like on the cross, Right. Yes, sir. So I'm glad you mentioned verse 2 again. Uh, I had to look it up to be reminded that every time I uh, share the Passover with my wife's family uh, and we read this, this book um, uh, before and after the meal, uh, the reclining at the table has extreme significance in the Jewish faith. Mm-hmm. You, did you mm-hmm, say, mm-hmm, do you remember mm-hmm. what that is? No, nothing specific, just other. Uh, in, in, in the NSA, NASB version, it is, it is actually italicized, uh, reclining at the table with him. Reclining for the Jews meant uh, in the worldly place, freedom, a free man. Hmm. Here, I believe that Lazarus is reclining with Jesus and again upsetting all of the Pharisees and everybody else who's there because he truly is a free man. Mm-hmm. He's been freed from death. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. ultimate thing that no one can be freed from without the Savior. That's cool. And so um, it's, it's very important. I don't know why in the CSB version it's not italicized. In the NSAB version yeah. it is. But um, I think that has extreme significance. That's that's cool. Yeah, you definitely can pick up on that. The even without the heritage, the the, understand, the cultural understanding, right. you know that he's, you know, if you're if you're having dinner with the Queen of England, I don't imagine reclining right. with the Queen of England, right? right? right. But this is the stinking same God who flung the stars into space and they're reclining with him. That is amazing to me. That, that is the God who loves us. So it's just amazing. So other, so different from what, again, the, the concept that I've misunderstood of, of God's got to still be angry with me. He's got to still be mad at me because I didn't understand the cross. Not to say I fully understand it now, but I'm saying like at least I got that figured out that it was the ending of God's counting of sins. Awesome. Thanks, Steve. Anything any other thought? Yeah. So you mentioned that Bernard was very pungent. Mm. So I was 
so everybody in that day and age knew that smell was represented death. I would imagine, day. yeah. So everybody walking by, in fact, it said the chief priests and every Jew was coming there mm -hmm. looking for death. Hmm. But they found life. Oh, wow. That's cool. Yeah. That's really cool, Leslie. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Yeah. No, that I, I can't imagine. Yeah, that smell association is so powerful. Um, April's told me before, I said, you could blindfold me, spin me around. If you set me inside of your 1982 Buick Regal that you had when we first met, I would know exactly where I am, you know, just by smelling. <laughs> and it's so powerful. And, and you're exactly right. Like, that's going to be associated by by it happening so many times with death but there's not death in there there's life there's there's feet that are still have blood going through why, why is this stuff on him that's really cool death and life jim you want to say something yeah living god ministries is that the right one for him? oh yes that's it b-u-d-j-e-n thank you b-u-d-j-e-n yeah i highly recommend it i highly he's got a 21 podcast episode podcast on divorce and remarriage that is just outstanding um there's there's just i i can't recommend them enough i, I i'm not sure if, except for maybe some in times stuff that he just kind of mentions doesn't hasn't really done like a series on it i don't really know if there's anything i've come across where like ooh, that's not gonna fly with me you know sort of thing it's very encouraging what i've what i've heard of him from from his podcast anything else it's cool huh just seeing his love i mean just seeing how things everything i mean how can pure nard show us the love of god towards us well when we see the, the reality of what the gospel really is um man it just changes it changes me it it changes perspective it changes it, it, it really, you know, the old therapeutic terms of dehabituation and rehabituation, it really starts changing those, those thought patterns and those habits and those, those inclinations into different ones, new ones. Like he said, I'll put new desires within you, new, new want-tos. And those are deep within the new heart. But I think it's this wrestling with how much he really loves me that begins to replace the renewing of the mind, begins to replace the natural fleshly go-tos with the new heart, the new spirit, the new man's go-tos, if that makes sense. And, and it's not dedication. It's not doubling down efforts. It's not condemnation. It's not, you know, do better, try harder that replaces that. It's just melting in his love for me. That does that, which is exactly what the apostle said. So, I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by it, but I think we've missed it for a long, long I've missed it for a long, long time. Anything else for the good of the order? Love you guys. Let's uh, stand and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Don't forget the 7th, July 7th. Love for you to be at the house. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for everyone who's here. We thank you for this just glimpse of this precious reality. Like, we, we can get Mary. Well, I, mean, I think we can really get Mary in just her gratitude, her thankfulness, her, her, her worship. I think we can get that. We can wrap our mind around that and why she would do that. Others might call it impulsive and un, un, unreasonable, the Judases. But, but we can get that. We can understand that. What we struggle to understand is how you, the God of the creation, would subject yourself to being broken and spilled out. By the Father breaking and spilling out the Son in this agony. We don't, that's harder for us to understand. So thank you for this help. This correlating reality, this historical allegory, whatever it's called, to help us to understand just how in love with the world you are. Because we can recite John 3.16 all we want, 
But until there's a true depth of revelation of this love towards us, we, we miss it. And we need to see it clearer and clearer because it is the method by which the thoughts and the desires of the old man, who is dead and gone, are replaced with the thoughts and the desires of the new man, who we now are in Christ. Not by effort, but by receiving your love for us. We thank you so much. I pray for everyone as we go out into this week that we would be in tune with your voice whispering deep within, declaring your love towards us. We love you so much. We thank you for your love towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.